Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest today is Laura Freeman, talking about her book, Ways of Life. Jim Eid and the Kettles Yard artists. We'll also hear from Rachel Meller, talking about her exploration of her family's history, the box with the sunflower clasp uncovering a Jewish family's flight to wartime Shanghai. And Antonia Byatt chats about the first story, Young Writers Festival, that took place in Cambridge recently. Laura, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, we're talking about young writers there, we're going to hear about the Young Writers Festival. And you yourself were shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award in 2018. Have you always been writing then? Yes, really. I mean, my poor parents have got stacks of my juvenilia at home and sort of, you know, attempted stories and, and bits and bobs. Um, I, I've, I've wanted to write for a very long time. And drawn to non-fiction because you, you do a lot of journalism and your first book was a memoir. So that's where you're drawn. Yes, I know I'm in awe of people who can sustain a plot, invent characters, you know, take us away somewhere completely different. I mean, I think the wonderful thing about a biography is the lead character, your hero, has sort of been invented for you already. You just have to uncover them and tell their story. And you studied history of art here in Cambridge. So this book is kind of the perfect combination for you. Yes, it's a funny sort of way I say in the book, you know, things do come around in spirals, um, riffing on the spiral of pebbles at Kettles Yard. Because I was an undergraduate at Magdalen College, which is just down the road from Kettles Yard. So I've known it since I was 19. But if you'd said to me at 19, you know, when you're 35, you'll be publishing a book about Jimmy. I'm not sure I'd have, I'd have quite believed you. And we're going to hear your first choice of music now. Is music important to you? Yes, it is. I mean, my my whole background is is visual art, but, you know, music and art go together. I was a a dance critic for several years, first for the Evening Standard and then for the Spectator. So ballet is a a passion of mine. Um, But this song is actually a song I play quite a bit to my daughter, who is six months and three weeks old. um, And it's called Goodnight, Sweetheart. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. That was Good Night, Sweetheart by the Overtones, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Laura Freeman. Laura is chief art critic for The Times. She's also written for The Spectator, Sunday Times, Daily Telegraph, and the TLS. Her first book, The Reading Cure How Books Restored My Appetite, a memoir was, as we have heard, shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award in 2018, and the Sunday Telegraph called it the most moving, most evocative book. Ways of Life, Jim Eid and the Kettles Yard Artists came out last month. The Daily Telegraph said of it, an excellent biography of Jim Eid. Reading Laura Freeman's luminous study of the curator and collector, I can't help but picture the gallery and house he built, the haven of Kettles Yard in Cambridge. You're going to get many more rave reviews for this book, Laura. It is absolutely beautiful, beautifully written, beautifully presented. And what I really enjoyed about it is I don't know an awful lot about art, but it felt very accessible. It's aimed at at everyone, really, isn't it? 
Definitely. I mean, it's one of Jimmy's crusading creeds, really, which is that art shouldn't be for an elite. It shouldn't be stuffed full of jargon. You know, there are no labels on the wall at Kettle's Yard because I think Jim felt you don't really want a curator or a text getting in the way of a direct experience with art. I have to say it's one of my bugbears as a critic that I go around some exhibitions and I think I don't understand what's on the wall. And I did a degree in history of art and I've been an arts journalist for 12 years. Is. And I think that ability to communicate directly and clearly is really important. So, so I hope I've done a bit of that in the book. Oh, you certainly have. And as you say, it, his view is very much art for all. I mean, I was astonished to, to learn he let people touch the sculptures. There was even an art loan scheme where you could you could take these things out on loan. His organisational skills weren't up to much. So I hope everything came back. <laughs> well, it's very sweet because he used to say, you know, you, of course you can borrow this. You can hang it on your wall for the term, but you must bring it back. Just don't hang it in direct sunlight. But he used to cycle around the colleges at the end of term, putting notes in pigeonholes, saying when a work of art is not returned, it rather diminishes the pleasure with which it was lent. Um, and yes, he did encourage people to touch the art. I mean, I've just had a lovely experience of going to the Sainsbury Centre in Norwich because they're letting you now kind of cuddle up to a Henry Moore mother and child in the collection. And I actually got quite emotional doing it. It felt very intimate, you know, stroking the back of this mother. I was quite struck how cold the stone was and I think it plays into something that Jim felt very strongly that sculpture you know it has an inherently tactile quality and so you kind of want to put your hands on it and as you say it's all there in a kettle's yard which he founded can you remember the first time you went to kettle's yard Yes, I went in Freshers Week in 2007. I was a very bad fresher. I, I've never been very good at parties. And I think that thing of sort of, you know, it's the curry night and the pizza night and the, you know, teriyaki night. Um, and I, I spent quite a lot of time on the phone to my mum calling from my room saying, please come and pick me up. But the other art historian in my year at my college said, look, I'm, I'm going to take you to this place. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. But she had grown up in Newmarket and she'd been to Kettle's Yard since childhood. So she took me there. We stood on the doorstep and we went in and I just, like so many people before and after me, completely fell in love with that very happy marriage of art and home. And also just that feeling that, you know, it's so unstuffy. It's so immediate. You, you know, there's a Alfred Wallace and a Ben Nicholson next to the loo. I just love the way that it makes you feel relaxed because the setting is so relaxed itself. And at the beginning of the book, you have a kind of fictional encounter with, you write it in the second person, but a fictional encounter as if somebody is meeting Jim and uh, because Jim used to take people on tours mm. of Kettle's Yard. They were extraordinary experiences, weren't they? They were. I mean, it is fictional, it is imagined, but I mean, I did more than 50 interviews with people who had been to Kettle's Yard in Jim's day in the late 50s, 60s and early 70s. And it's sort of a, a composite of many of their memories, things like cycling off with a, a work of art in your bicycle basket at the end of the visit. And the reason I, I did that is the thing that Jim is most famous for actually comes very late in his life. He's in his 60s by the time he comes to Cambridge in Kettle's Yard. But I felt we needed to kick off with Kettle's Yard because that's probably why people are buying the book, because they love it. Yes, as you say, it had a whole life in art before then, hadn't he, at the Tate and various other organisations, and actually mixed with some of the biggest names in art at that time. 
Yes, he, I mean, he was a great talent spotter. I think partly he was a bit of a lion hunter. I think when he saw someone with potential, he he sought them out. But, you know, he knew Ben and Winifred Nicholson, Christopher Wood, David Jones, Henry Moore, Barbara Hepworth. He used to save up his holiday and go to Paris every November. And he'd, you know, hang out with Picasso and Brancusi. He met Brack. You know, there's accounts of him sitting at a cafe with um, Juan Miro. You know, he really did know absolutely everybody. And then all these literary figures. um, And he knew the Bloomsbury's like Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. His kind of visitor's book at his house in Hampstead in the 1920s is this kind of incredible gossipy who's who of anyone who's anyone in London. And he seemed to have just an instinct for art, for interpreting art. You include a, a few of his interpretations in the book. Where did that come from, do you think? Because he wasn't, uh, he didn't come from an artistic family particularly, did he? No, I mean, it's very interesting. He was very close friends for a time with Ben Nicholson, whose father was William Nicholson, who was probably the most successful portrait painter of, you know, the late Victorian Edwardian period. And there's a joke, you know, Ben Nicholson was born with a silver paintbrush in his mouth. And Jim wasn't like that at all. If anything, he complained that his parents, who were rather strict Methodists, you know, Jim grew up in a suburb in Wales. His father was a solicitor, no artistic background at all. Jim rebelled against his parents' rather fussy, stuffy, late Victorian taste, lots of mahogany, dark colours, heavy fabrics, pattern, Ottomans, whatnots, you know. And in a way, you know, Jim's generation were kind of in total rebellion against the taste of their parents and grandparents, you know, wanting sparse interiors, lots of white, quite minimalist, abstract art on the walls. So no, I mean, Jim didn't come from an artistic background at all. But he did have a philosophy, didn't he, that he, I don't know where that had come from. There's something he seemed to develop over time, the idea of attributing a story almost to every painting and saying each each painting was like a person. Yes, no, he, he used to say pictures are like people. He used to talk to them. There's this nice story about when the Tate did their big Ben Nicholson retrospective in the 60s. Jim lent six pictures and he turns around over his shoulder almost to kind of start a conversation with the painting and realise it's it's gone, it's on loan. So, yes, I think he, he saw art and people as one and the same. The way he characterised himself was not as a curator or a collector, but his formulation was friend to artists. And he was an interesting individual. I mean, lots of contradictions within himself you said you wanted to paint an honest portrait of him Mm. which you did because yeah he could be outgoing but very shy he hung out with lots of uh, very liberally minded people but he himself had quite strict moral views yeah I mean I think it's almost become a cliche of biography to say he was a man of contradictions and the truth is probably we all are I mean nobody is kind of the same you know every day and all their lives and Jim had a very long life I mean he lived you know till he was 95 you know practically the whole of the 20th century But he was a contrary sort of person. I remember when I first signed the contract, I I, I kind of almost had second thoughts. And I was worried that if all I was going to say was, here was a man with a wonderful eye who created a beautiful house, it's going to be a very boring book and a very short one. And the more I looked, the more interesting and strange and difficult and vexing he was as a person. Gettle's Yard, if you know it, the rooms are immaculate and impeccable. You know, Jim could spot a pebble out of place at 20 paces, but he was fantastic fantastically disorganised, you know, in his filing, in his correspondence. His handwriting is appalling. I think if I ever write another biography, I will choose someone with, you know, perfect copper plate script. (laughs) Uh, And 
he was incredibly sociable in some ways, rather reclusive in others. We probably all know people who can turn on the smile for a party, but actually, you know, quite like being left alone with their books in their own home. So he is intriguing. And you say born a Victorian, uh, became an Edwardian, and then of course lived through so many other different ages. He was partly a product of his time, uh, but also quite forward thinking as well. Yes, I mean, I think this question of being ahead of the game in terms of taste is really interesting because when Jim was working at the Tate in the 1920s you know all the paintings on the wall they were people like Lord Leighton you know the lots of those pictures of nymphs having their bath that slightly syrupy soupy I mean for me I can't stand it you know those pictures of sort of you know women bathed in flowers and Jim loathed that you know he was so excited about you know British modernism and the move from figuration to abstraction but what's fascinating is that when Jim gets to Kettle's Yard in the 1960s, people look at works by Ben Nicholson and they go, oh, it's a bit sort of groovy and avant-garde and a bit advanced for me. And Jim's saying these paintings were by that point 40 years old. And it's interesting how you do get some tastemakers, you know, who, who are often way, way ahead of the curve. And it, and it takes everybody else decades to catch up often. Thank you, Laura. Well, let's stay with that sense of origins and hear from Rachel Mello. Rachel grew up near London, the middle daughter of refugees who escaped Nazi-run Austria. The Box with the Sunflower Clasp is her first book. And when I met Rachel, I asked her to tell me what the book's about. Basically, it's the story of my mother's younger sister who fled Vienna when the Nazis took over Austria. She fled with her family to the unlikely destination of Shanghai. But it's more than just her story. I originally wanted to write it because she never told me anything about it when she was alive because she was just a rather cool and unemotional and uncommunicative woman. I really wanted to get close to her because she was my mother's sister and the other big driver of this book was the fact that I lost my mother to postnatal depression when I was a baby, so I never knew my mother at all. So I thought if I found out more about my aunt's story, I might delve back into their history. I might learn more about the two sisters and my, my heritage. And how much of this is truth and how much is fiction? It's all true. I made up my mind at the start to base everything that I could on f the factual evidence. I've imagined some conversations, but they're based totally on the characters of the people that I've researched and on the life in Shanghai that I've researched and I have spent a lot of time um, working on this book. It was not a flash in the pan, I can tell you. I've tried to be as absolutely truthful as I can. Though I did go to a very fascinating talk on narrative non-fiction by a wonderful man and he did say you need to embroider the truth to make it more fascinating for the readers. So. Everything is based on the truth, but obviously I'm trying to be more emotional and cut out all the references. I had so many references, and that was my big... My editor and everyone else who read it kept saying, Rachel, Rachel, we trust your research. Can we have fewer facts and more emotion? <laughs> well, what was your, were your sources of research? There was a book based on a PhD by a historian called David Kranzler called Japanese Nazis and Jews, which is a fascinating title. And he really has written a huge study of the life of the refugees from Nazi-run Europe who escaped by going to Shanghai. The other two main sources were 
a book that was given to me by my brother-in-law in which I discovered my aunt had opened up about her past to a historian in America by Steve Hochstadt about Exodus to Shanghai. And then, of course, the box with the sunflower clasp, that was the real trigger because that was left to me by my aunt rather unexpectedly, actually. I hadn't known she was going to give it to me after her death. And that was full of obviously very precious mementos and documents and photographs, postcards, spanning 30 or so years. So that was her way of, of telling you? I wonder. The romantic part of me likes to think she wanted to tell me her story. Various traumas in her life made her the, the closed and rather cold person she was. I don't think she was cold by nature, but she became that way, and the book reveals some of the secrets, the tragedies that I didn't know about. I wonder if, instead of talking to me directly, she gave me the box with the hope I might make this into a book. I don't know. I'd like to think that. And you said the rather unlikely destination of Shanghai. Yes. Why Shanghai, then? Shanghai was a place in turmoil since 1937 because the Japanese had invaded and fought for Shanghai. It was very strategically important to them. They had taken over virtually all of Shanghai, except for the foreign concessions, which were almost like little colonies run by the British and Americans, one settlement, and the other was the French concession. Those were still held in 1937 by the foreign settlers. It was so chaotic, nobody was checking visas at the port. So when the Jewish immigrants landed at the Bund in Shanghai, no one was checking their papers or visas. And the other thing, they didn't even need visas, but up to about 1940, I believe, in Vienna, the Chinese consul was being very generous with visas to Shanghai because he felt so compassionate towards the Jews under the Nazis. Even though they weren't needed, it helped the Jews get out of Vienna because they showed the Nazis they had some means of getting out of the country. And you said you wanted to get to know your aunt better as a way of getting to know your mum. Have you? Is, has this helped with that? I think I have much more empathy for my aunt. I'd always tried to love her and to get close to her, but she was rather closed off, which I know is nothing like my own mother. So I tried to ask her numerous times about my mother, but she she never picked up on any conversation. I can't remember now how she stopped the conversation, but it never happened. But having researched her life and, with the help of the Vienna archives, discovered what happened to traumatise her when she was a young teenager and also discovered what happened to her in Shanghai, I've got much more sympathy and empathy for her and... I have to thank her for the box, really, the legacy that helped me do something I'd always wanted to do, which was look into her life and write a book about it. So this is your aunt, aunt's story. It's not your mum's story. I've woven in my mother's story in parallel as much as I can. And when I started writing the book, I was really ambitious in timings and I was jumping back and forth in time and it was very complicated and I hardly said anything about my mother. But then wonderful editors at Icon and my agent, they said, simplify it, just please go in the order of time and write your mother's story and your father's story in parallel and put a lot more of you into it, which I hadn't wanted to do at all. So it's, you know, it's had many drafts, but I think the end result is much clearer to understand 
and describes my life growing up as a daughter of Viennese refugees because my mother left Vienna, didn't go to Shanghai, came to London and met and married a Viennese refugee. It's as much as my mum's story as I could weave in and that I know for a fact because she died when I was three months old and it was a very tricky subject as I was growing up because my elder sister, who also figures in this book, she was six when my mum died. I think it hit her much harder. It would have done, you can imagine. She didn't want to talk about my mother. My stepmother didn't... I couldn't ask her. And I didn't want to upset my father by raising the whole issue because I knew all through my life that my mother had taken her own life, which I guess coloured my whole life hasn't made me a depressed person, I don't think. It's just made me want to understand mental illness and depression and postnatal depression. And that's another theme of the book because I was so interested in what could drive a woman with a new baby to actually take her own life. And that's what shifted me from studying English, which was my best subject, to doing science to try and be a doctor and a psychiatrist, which I knew I couldn't be because I was so squeamish, I couldn't stand the sight of blood. So... In a way, I've got the best of both worlds. I learnt medical science, I learnt research, I learnt how to reference things. I guess I'm a meticulous researcher, but now I've got to use my writing skills, I hope, if people like them, in writing this story. And by filling in these blanks about your past, do you feel you've filled in blanks in yourself? Do you feel a more rounded, whole person? A lot of things have changed for me. I always think everyone should be like me and share, have their heart on their sleeve, and I know they're not like that. If you're maybe more introverted or you're, you've got tragedies you don't want to speak about, I now respect that much more. I feel so much more empathy for my aunt and probably for my elder sister, who we had, um, I would say, 